This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malad. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 1. This season highlights the stories of immigrants and refugees from all around the world, as well as some organizations that work with and for these beautiful people. My conversation partner today is an incredibly talented woman who shares her passion of storytelling through the powerful art of filmmaking. She also happens to be an undocumented immigrant, as well as a DACA recipient. Laura is the first dreamer, one who is protected under DACA, that I have ever met. So of course I had plenty of questions for her about the whole process. She is so gracious to share her experiences and knowledge with us here today. Laura, thank you so much for being with me today. I am really excited to get to hear your story and to um, experience life through your lens. Thank you. If would you mind letting us know um, how long you have lived here and what your age is? My name is Laura Benice. I've lived here since 1997. I am 36 years old now. Okay. So I've been here for over 20 years. Where are you originally from? I was born in Puebla, Mexico. Could you uh, describe your childhood for us? What was it like growing up in Puebla? It was interesting. I remember having a good childhood. My parents paid attention to us. They played with us. Um, they were both my parents were oral storytellers, and oh, we had wow. the best stories at home. And when my cousins would come over, it was story time, and we would gather in a circle. Um, and so I, I have good memories. Um, I do also remember the scarcity of things, um, living in really poor conditions, because even though my my dad had a job and he could work and, and make money f- to put food on the table, um, it was still never enough to to say, go out and buy new shoes or, mm-hmm. or new clothes. Um, everything was always... Um, inaccessible. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember that even having three meals a day was a big issue. Like it wouldn't happen always. I do remember that aspect of my childhood there and Mm -hmm. and as a major motivator for us to want to move somewhere else and and pursue an easier life. More opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the whole oral story, storytelling, um, is this something that was like passed down from their parents to them, or this is something they had a gift for, or this was just their personality and they love to share stories with you guys? Um, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think about that sometimes. Um, I was born in the eighties in the era of television and it was not a major thing for my parents in their time. So I think that it was something that was passed down to them. Um, but both my parents were very creative mm-hmm. beings. And so I think that was a way for them to express their um, creativity um, and and just to keep a lot of children entertained. Yes, that's um, so that is creative. I love yeah. that. And that's such a great way to pass that um, imagination down to your kids. That's a beautiful thing. Um, and how many brothers and sisters did you say you had? I have two brothers and one sister. And okay. They're all younger. Okay. So you had mentioned that um, you moved to the United States for more opportunity. Were you aware of any other factors that made your parents decide to leave home and um, at all? Yeah, we were going through a transition at home. My parents had gotten separated. Um, my mom was suffering me- different medical um, conditions that needed attention. Mm-hmm. And I think that my my dad wanted for us to have 
the best that we could have. Mm -hmm. And I do remember that a major factor that made my father want to move here to the U.S., it was also he felt a lot of insecurity in his neighborhood in our city where we lived. Um, he was constantly worried that something might happen to us. And um, and and so I, I do remember that he wanted to find a place for us where we could feel safer mm-hmm. um, and also where we could have equal opportunities to education, which mm-hmm. and my family, nobody um, had ever had access to going to higher education. And that's a dream that my dad had for us since, since back then. I think that's something that as Americans, we definitely take for granted access to the higher education. A lot of people choose not to have it, but we have the access and we don't even know to be thankful for that access, do we? Were the cartels and the drug trafficking as bad of a problem in the 80s and early 90s um, as they are now? Is that part of the stuff that your dad was nervous for you guys as far as for your safety? And at that time, I think in the 90s, there was a lot of reports of children that were going missing, a lot of kidnapping of children and trafficking. And um, I, I, I remember that was his biggest um, concern and stress. Um, there was, uh, I think there was this something happening in the South uh, and it was the rebellion of the indigenous people not want, not letting the government take over their lands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a civil war going on and it, it, it created more military presence within the cities. Um, we were close enough to it that we could see that. And wow. it, it was just um, uncertain times. And then the economy was also falling down in the, in the 90s um and it 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 was a lot of different factors yeah Um, but definitely i think that safety for children at that time um was was a very delicate thing um and a very scary thing to be hearing about those things Wow, that's incredible. I wish I had I knew the history of Mexico and the different states better because I think if all of us knew the history of where a lot of people are coming from, people might be a little bit more compassionate like, "Oh, if I put myself in your shoes, I'd be feeling the same way about wanting to keep my children safe." And and uh, I had no idea of the uprising of the indigenous people that you were speaking of. So thank you for educating me about that. Yeah, I- I, I was young, so I also yeah. need to continue to educate myself. Um, but I mean, I, as I said, like I, I remember just visuals of people, a lot of people holding guns and being, wow. you know. <laughs> Children don't need to be seeing people armed in the streets. That's a, that yeah. will stay with you for a long time and create quite a bit of fear. You mentioned the access to education. Did your parents have to pay school fees? Is that something that you do in Mexico or is that part of your taxes? So I think we were in public school, so it was a very small fee that you pay to, um, mainly to cover textbooks that the school provides. Um, I think the biggest expense is buying school uniforms. supplies for school Um, but at the time when I was there that was accessible so that was not um, it it was not a big deal Um, as much as it was to per se get get the uniforms and get the shoes that you need to go to school I do Mm -hmm. remember that was the biggest expense and Mm -hmm. and um, I I didn't have um, a lot of uniforms I got that one uniform that I have to rewash because we just couldn't afford to buy more than one uniform. Getting new shoes was like a dream because we could not just get new shoes. We would have Mm -hmm. to buy used shoes or just Mm -hmm. take hand-me-downs. Even access to water was also another scarce thing that I can remember from there. Um, And in the city where I was, 
the water wasn't just on all day long. We didn't have running water all day long. They would just turn on the water at certain times. Um, like really early in the morning, you had to wake up before seven in the morning so you could save up water and you have enough water for the day, um, that sort of thing. So there are definitely a lot of things that that I don't take for granted now that oh, I'm yes. here, including the running water um, and including access to, to toilet paper. Remember, toilet paper is such a luxury to have. That we, wow. we didn't always have it. And so... Um, I really wish people would really understand um, how our how economics, how our, the class that we're born into, really mm -hmm. pushes people to to move out and and seek opportunity. That is unbelievable. You're right. We don't think twice about turning the water on. We waste a lot of water, even, but that has formed your life and made you who you are. Do you remember your journey? to the United States? I do. I was, um, I remember before the journey, my dad being mindful of what we wanted as children, even though he could have just said, let's go, we're leaving. He didn't do that. He mm. asked us, the children, how we felt about it and if this was something that we wanted to do. Um, and, and at that time, he, um, well, this is going back a little bit to your other mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. but at that time, um, we, like I knew as a 12-year-old, um, I knew that if I wanted to go to college or pursue a higher education, I would somehow have to be that 1% who gets the scholarships. Otherwise, I was not going to make it into a um, school mm -hmm. higher education so when my dad offered this opportunity or this idea to us I was really excited and um, and really motivated because I had dreams since back then of wanting to do so many things mm -hmm. and I knew that college was definitely part of my plans and I know knew that if we came here my chances were bigger yeah. At, at going to college. And, and so I was really excited. And so were my brothers. Um, I remember my younger brother was dreaming of owning his own PlayStation um, so that he wouldn't yeah. have to play with somebody else in mm -hmm. order for him to play. Um, and so this, I, I always remember and appreciate that about my dad, how he, he took us into consideration and, and helped us, um, made that decision with him and so once we decided to come um, it was a three three days travel on mm -hmm. the train to to make it all the way to the border mm -hmm. where we um, we had to walk through through a lot of um, desert rocks um, a lot of different environments I feel like we were very fortunate that we didn't encounter any dangerous situations yes. um, the the most that I remember um, the most uncomfortable and difficult was just walking for for a long long time mm -hmm. and um, at night not being able to see when we're stepping on thorns and mm -hmm. and I remember my my father's feet were bleeding from just like stepping on thorns and and rocks and um, but he, he was so strong and he, I remember him carrying my two little brothers and I was just walking next to him. Oh my goodness. And um, I'm grateful that we were people of faith back then and we still uh -huh. are. Uh -huh. And our faith carried us through and we could see the stars watching over us. And, um, and I, I don't remember feeling like I was in danger or feeling like I was um, doing something um that was bad for us uh -huh. it just felt like this was a journey that needed to happen and it felt like such an incredible important moment of our lives um, that's amazing that you knew that even then and the faith of a child and their parent you weren't afraid because your dad had it all all together that is incredible your father right now he my heart is just swelling with thankfulness and love for him first of all he considered you guys in the journey 
And then he leads you all the way and you didn't really encounter horrible hardships as we've heard that many people have to suffer. When you talk about the train, that is that the La Bestia? Did you have to ride inside or on top of the train? Um, no, we just uh, we just got tickets. I'm glad you guys had tickets on the train. And I'm, all I'm thinking the whole time you're saying this is we have got to get one pair of shoes every year. And those shoes are the ones you're walking through the desert in. I'm so sorry because I can imagine how those shoes got beaten up and I would be thinking about that the whole time. Like, when am I going to get another pair of shoes? Yeah, I remember once we were here on the other side and we walked into a McDonald's and it was the first time we've ever stepped into a McDonald's and we were just covered up in like mud uh -huh. and, <laughs> and our shoes were completely covered in mud and we see, you know, we just walked in and we walked in at the same time that a, a team of soccer player kids were walking into McDonald's and uh -huh. everybody had really nice and shiny shoes and and they just looked at us but <laughs> didn't really pay too much attention. <laughs> But That's funny that you would recognize their shoes. That's the thing you remember about walking into McDonald's. <laughs> shoes are important to you. Yeah. I can understand why. Yes. Wow. Water and shoes and education, right? Yes. yes. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Laura. And That's toilet a, paper, too. And toilet paper. <laughs> yes. I, I did forget some to mention a very important detail from the journey crossing. Okay. Um, and... I just want to mention the point when we were, we had just crossed the river, um, the, Rio, the Rio Grande River. Mm -hmm. And I remember we crossed and we were already on the other side, but then we heard um, a helicopter, a border patrol helicopter approaching and they were just approaching towards us and they were searching with, with their light because at that time it was already getting dark. Mm -hmm. So they were searching with their light for something mm -hmm. right where we had just crossed. And we just did our, our best to tuck in and try to cover under mm -hmm. this bush. Um, it was a dead bush that really had no cover. <laughs> and, um, Oh, we were man. pretty sure that this helicopter that was shining light down on us at that time, at that point, we're pretty sure that they were coming to to get us and to send us back. And so at that time, um, at that moment when we realized this, my dad asked, told us, he said, I'm pretty sure they're going to come and they might detain us and send us back. Um, do you guys just want to go ahead, turn around, and we should we just go back before they come and get us? Oh, and I remember my younger brother was, uh, he was scared, and he said, I, I would like to go back because I miss my family. Uh -huh. And as the older person or the older kid who really, really wanted to come here, I told him, I asked my dad for another chance to stay and and give it a try mm -hmm. and i said dad if they come and they detain us that's okay we can live with that and we can just go back and at least we'll know that we tried our best and it didn't work out and and so my dad uh, he prayed at that moment and my dad prayed and he put it into god's hands and and then that was it we after the prayer, which was waited in silence, um, and nobody came, and so it was a really, a really key moment for me to reassure that faith that wow. I had that this journey was not just in our hands, but it was in in the in the hands of a greater power as well. Yes. How long did you have to lay there waiting? Um, we, I, I can't remember. It was it was a few moments, and then we waited for a while, and nobody came. We saw an abandoned car or truck or something, so we moved over and we went inside the car. We're still waiting for a few hours, and and nobody ever came after a few hours. I am amazed with the grace and the forethought you had to speak what you said, and to sit there and trust your dad and God, despite 
the fact of knowing you could easily be in a detention center within minutes or hours. I am in awe of your courage right now. Thank you. Um, like I said, a moment that was very key for me to, to strengthen my faith. Um, I think if I would have known at that time, um, the, the sort of things that happen inside of detention centers and, and stuff like that, if I would have had a full awareness, mm-hmm. it would have been a very, very scary moment. And that's something that I also remember about my dad, that he also had that innocence of not knowing what he, what he was getting himself to and ourselves into mm-hmm. by just walking here um, he he had no knowledge at all of how the law works here in the U.S. Um, or, or what the what the consequences are for something like this, and mm-hmm. and I always remember that um, my dad had just barely finished high school back in Mexico and mm-hmm. didn't pursue higher education. Um, he knew how to read and write very basically, um, but even doing writing and like more complicated writing would be Mm -hmm. difficult for him. So, um, so that's just another thing that I like to bring up about how many people who come from very poor backgrounds really don't have education to understand how the law works Mm -hmm. over here and the consequences as well. Yeah. Your dad, I am, (laughs) the more you talk about your dad, the more I love him. Um, He, made such an incredible choice. First of all, taking you guys in consideration. And then secondly, taking whatever consequence might befall him to do this out of love for you guys. Wow. What, what parental love. Talk about taking risks and doing whatever it takes. And just because he wasn't aware of the consequences on the other side, doesn't make it any less risky. Now that you know all the consequences, you have that much greater appreciation for him. Mm-hmm. We, we need to humanize the people who choose to cross the border, not in legal ways, and humanize them as parents and brothers and uncles and fathers and sons. And remember what is at stake in their lives and why they're making the biggest risk and taking the biggest risk of all for the people they love and for their own lives. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Immigrant and Refugee Center of Northern Colorado, making Northern Colorado a home for all who live here. Whatever circumstances brought you to Northern Colorado, we are so glad you're here now. IRC NOCO is here to help you find your way. We want to be the doorway through which cross-cultural sharing and experiences occur. Whether you are new to this area or you are a part of the receiving community, we want to be your resource for information and services related to moving our community forward together. Through information sharing, dialogue, and events where we can all come together as one, we are investing into our shared prosperity. Empower, connect, advocate. Learn more at www.ircnoco.org. What were the hardest adjustments your family had to make once you arrived in the U.S. after going through that travail getting here? And even though you were optimistic and hopeful, were there still some adjustments and hurdles to overcome once you arrived? We didn't see any right away. I think that it felt like a good transition. Um, we were able to get enrolled in school. Um, we, as young children, we were able to pick up English um, fairly quickly and mm-hmm. were able to... Um, we were just excited to be learning a new language and um, it didn't feel like even, even my dad was very quick at picking up English and starting conversations with people. And I've noticed that about storytellers though, oral traditions, people who come from oral traditions are very quick at picking up languages. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Um, 
yeah, I was always surprised about how quickly my dad was able to pick up English and and just not be afraid of making conversations and making new friends. And mm-hmm. um, he just made friends everywhere he went. And um, a lot of people love him mm-hmm. up until this day. He's a very friendly person. Um, and I think that to me personally, as a young woman who was growing up um, at that time without my mom, because my mom was not here yet, it was hard to be sheltered from from the vulnerability of being um, of being a subject of abuse, and I think that I started to see that very quickly in my life um, when I was in school or when I was in certain environments, even. Um, but that that is always so shocking to me. How even in our own schools we have people who who know that there are kids without status who are likely not going to report things and they take advantage of. Um, I think it was an eye opener for me to see how when a person doesn't have status in this country, they can really become vulnerable to abuse, whether it's at the school, where it's at home, whether it is by um, at them at work there's always um, people who take advantage of that fact that undocumented immigrants may be too scared to call the police or to Mm -hmm. report things. Mm -hmm. That is a huge vulnerability and something that is definitely not addressed in schools or yeah, in society. And I really, really love how you say kids without status. I needed to learn this. I, I need to know this because even though I work or have been working with that population, um, adults without status, I still use the term illegal immigrant. And I only learned recently how hurtful and harmful that that is. I thought I was doing a good thing by not saying illegal alien. Oh, I knew that wasn't good. Alien is not human, right? We don't want to dehumanize. But even thinking I was doing the right thing, I was still doing the wrong thing by using the term illegal instead of without status. I appreciate you sharing this and teaching us this. That means a lot to me. That's something I've definitely learned so far in this journey of interviewing a lot of people. I've been called out on that, and I'm glad I was. That's good. We get called out all the time, and I still, you know, I was using the word illegal until a few years ago, and... Mm -hmm. And we just, there's so many things that have, that need addressing that Mm -hmm. have become normalized in our society and we don't really think about it too much. Yes, even well-intentioned people. Mm -hmm. um, That's so true. But the whole purpose of these conversations and of learning is to take the dehumanization out of this um, that so many Um, undocumented people and even refugees and immigrants who have documentation, they still suffer that. Um, They they still suffer dehumanization, but I think it's probably worse for the undocumented. Well, I'm sorry you had to endure the abuses from even other children. I can't imagine what that does to your psyche. Yeah, I think that it made me go into my adulthood, into... Mm-hmm. Uh, into being very isolated. Um, it was hard for me to trust people, mm-hmm. but it was also hard for me to see the opportunities that were there because mm-hmm. I knew there were opportunities and I had a chance to pursue the education I always wanted to. But at the same time, um, I had these other factors pulling me, such as not knowing if I can trust this person who's offering me help. And just to have that stress of like, you know, someone should be getting reported. If it's a a teacher from the school who's talking to girls in a way that he shouldn't be, um, but I can't Mm -hmm. report him because he knows about my status. So it's it's a very um, complicated thing that gets to you and it really prevents you from from pursuing your your dreams in full capacity, like the way you had planned. Um, 
you had nobody to talk to about this at all. There was no adults who could guide you through these situations that you did trust. And no, I, I, I mean, I had my dad, but I didn't want to put him at risk or mm-hmm. get him involved because to me that felt putting him at risk. So, so you just carried this by yourself as a child. I'm so sorry. That's a huge emotional burden. And in the sense of trying to protect your dad. Yeah, I can see how that's a trauma. You've probably had to work through and deal with the rest of your life. Even though you're an optimistic person, even though you're a person of faith, it doesn't take away the sting of, of that, does it? It doesn't. Mm. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry you experienced that. Okay, well, we'll get back on track. Is there any other, are there any other train of thoughts you would like to finish or anything? Once we were here, I, and once I grew and grew into adulthood, I realized that uh, pursuing a higher education was not going to be as easy as I thought. And Mm -hmm. that there were also going to be challenges to pursue that without Mm -hmm. documentation. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other challenge we faced was once we were here and my dad was established working and we had a home, we had everything that we needed and he was able to save up money to hire a lawyer and get our immigration status um, fixed. Then we encountered the problem that once um, once you cross the, lo- the line, then you face charges that prevent you from fixing your status once you're here. And so, you can't fix your status once you're here. Right. If you, if, because of the way we came, if we would have come in with a visa, we could have done it um, at that time. And because the way we came, uh, we couldn't. So there's no way to make it right, even though you're wanting to. Right. And it was especially it was especially frustrating because we we did have a path at that time, but then um, the September 11 um, thing had happened recently, and so the laws changed. And I remember that that's what what changed everything and prevented us from fixing our status. And I remember the lawyer specifically saying. Yeah, because of these new changes in the law um, that make it um, an offense or I don't want to say a crime, but it's an offense to to cross over without a visa, um, then you no longer have a chance to fix your status. That is why DACA was such a huge deal when President Obama presented it, right? Would you mind explaining DACA to us or how that's different from DREAMers and what that stands for? Sure. Um, It was announced in 2012 by President Obama. Mm -hmm. It is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And what it is, is a result of many undocumented youth were fighting very hard to get some sort of protection. Um, not just for them, but for their parents as well. And they were doing hunger strikes at, at Obama's office. And it took a lot of hard work. And, and then Obama finally said, okay, I'll do this. And then he did it. And it was wonderful because it gave us that relief of not needing to be afraid anymore that mm-hmm. we might be deported at any time. Mm-hmm. It also gives us um, a work permit and a social security number that the social security number we can't use for public benefits, but we can use it to work and to get Mm -hmm. a a driver's license. Mm -hmm. And so just those things were huge. It was not the same thing as having residency. because with permanent residency, it's a little bit more of a permanent protection. This was not a permanent protection because you have to renew every two years. And I also can't leave the country, which is, it is another huge thing because I'm not able to leave the country. I'm not able to go visit my family or go visit my home country. So it's staying here with many restrictions, but you're 
but you can't be deported. I can't be deported unless, um, because you, to obtain DACA, you do have to have a clean record. You have to be in a certain uh, group age. And so I was very close to be maxed out of that group age. And, you know, one more year and I wouldn't have oh, no. qualified. Um, and you also have to have a diploma or being enrolled in college or something like that. Um, and wow. it, it's hard because I did see a lot of people who should have qualified for DACA, but they didn't because they were either one month too old or they had something, some sort of um, record they had, they had with, with police of some sort. Oh, um, that's awful. Which is hard because, you know, as, as young yeah. people, we always, you know, we can get in the wrong crowds at the wrong uh -huh. time and, and so quickly you can be in the system. And so um, I think that the difference from DACA and the DREAM Act is that the DREAM Act that has been introduced every year for the past 20 years, it is, um, that would be a permanent protection and it would be a path to, to citizenship. I'm wondering with your, the fear you had growing up of who to trust and are they really going to help me? Did this come to play with the whole DACA thing? Like, uh, can I trust them? Like if I give my information, am I going to be sent back? Like I can imagine there's probably a lot of people in your shoes who felt too nervous to trust the government on this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I know of a, a few folks who didn't apply for DACA for that same reason. They could have, but they didn't trust it enough they didn't think it was it was good enough of a protection because you're giving away not only your information but now you're telling the government where your parents live and mm -hmm. the rest of your family and how risky that is mm -hmm. and it's something that at any moment could be taken away at deferred action such as we are seeing right now in this yes. new administration, which has been trying to resign DACA and, and it's been successful at it because now the, the latest changes to DACA are that instead of renewing every two years, we will have to renew every one year. And the fees have also increased. So instead of paying $500 every two years, I will have to pay about $800 every one year. And it's a process that takes several months um, to get it done. So mm -hmm. it is- I can't imagine um, that hanging over your head for a whole year. I mean, that's just, like you said, a process that takes so long and you're just, it's always on your mind. Yeah, and it's nerve-wracking when yeah. I have to do this application, even though it's just an application. I, you know, you hear of stories of people who missed that one signature in that one spot and their whole application got denied. Yes. And so it's something that you want to prepare very carefully, many months in advance. Are there organizations that help you with that, that help you with the DACA preparation there are there Good. are many wonderful organizations who provide um, DACA clinics and they help people with the process of filling out their application. And some of them even help with scholarships to pay with DACA too. Well, I would like to add those to my show notes. So we're going to have those in the show notes on the podcast at, on the webpage if anybody's interested in finding out more about that. That's, that seems like a very invaluable resource. Now, this would be on the federal level. Can states do anything individually apart from the federal immigration reform? Can each state have their own immigration laws, or is that not possible? It is not possible um, that they can affect the federal law, or, but I think that states can control a lot of how their resources are being managed here. I think that states and um, municipal counties can really work to to protect families without getting in the way of, of federal law. When local police are 
working together with ICE, that can be very harmful, not only to the families, but to that entire community because the trust between law enforcement and, and the immigrant com community can be corroded. It can be really hard to gain that trust again. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the potential fear of detention when you first cross the border and how that correlates to what you do now and how you, where you work. Could you tell us a little bit about what your current job is and how that relates to detention centers? Well, I am now working for the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition. I am a hotline coordinator for the documentation line. And people that call our hotline are families who have just had an encounter with ICE, um, or maybe they are trying to report um, an experience or an abuse that they experienced. The other um, wonderful opportunity that we have with this hotline is that we can help families who are going through a deportation process and we can connect them with the resources that are already there in community available to them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it can make such a huge difference when you are going through something like this that you were not expecting that is very terrible and unexpected and, and super expensive and you have no idea how to deal with something like this. Um, it, it can be so helpful to just have someone that can listen to you, can listen to your story. You have become the person you wish you had when you were younger and you were experiencing those frustrations and problems. And you have become the person who helps solve those problems and you listen to the people who have been affected like you were. Has growing up undocumented affected how you raise your children now? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, it really shaped me into being a really protective parent and having those conversations with them very often um, of, of them knowing how to recognize when they're in dangerous situations. That's a, yeah, you're much more, you have a heightened awareness, it sounds like, for sure. Um, this is something I meant to ask you earlier. So I know education was one of the main reasons you were excited about coming to the U.S., did you get to go to college? And if so, what for? I have an associate's degree on okay. writing and directing for film and video. And I, I did this process of getting this associate's degree. Mm -hmm. and, and it was a process that took me not over nine years because wow. that was before I had DACA and you know, I had to pay tuition out of pocket mm -hmm. and I didn't have that money in my pocket. So I had to just take turns between working and going to school mm -hmm. and, and raising my first daughter uh, mm -hmm. during that time as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and yeah, it is definitely the most exciting part of having um, a status or even a, a semi-status like DACA because then... I know that the options are more open than they were before I had DACA. So you said you uh, went to school for some filmmaking. I've had the pleasure of watching some snippets of what you have created and helped produce. Would you like to speak to some of those and tell the audience about what it is that you are working on creating? I think since I was in film school and just trying to find my voice as a writer, director, I really fell in love with the process of documenting and filming real life stories. And I, I, I don't know, I just went that route. And I wanted to also film stuff that I wasn't seeing myself. Mm -hmm. And so when I was going to film school, I, I know that the topic about immigration is very controversial, but because we didn't have DACA yet, there was a lot of hesitance and, and community to, to speak up about, about your status or about the changes we want to see happen. Um, so I remember being very, very inspired by documentaries on the civil rights movement here in Colorado mm -hmm. and how that shaped Colorado. 
and I was just so inspired by that. And, and I wanted to do something similar um, about what was happening in Colorado now. And so I started to inquire to see if anybody would want to work with me on a film about immigration. And, and I got a lot of no's, surprisingly, even from people who I consider being my friends at school. And they wow. just didn't want to be involved in a project that would be um, risky mm-hmm. and, and not knowing how, what the complications might be of um, interviewing people who uh, don't have status. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that film, that first film that I produced, a uh, documentary film that I produced in college, it is called No One Shall Be Called Illegal. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my younger brother and asked him if he would be willing to speak on camera about his experiences of being undocumented. And he was on board with me and together we created this short film that ended up being featured at the the International Denver Film Festival here in Denver in 2011. And that really did open up uh, doors for me so that I could find mm-hmm. other folks who wanted to work on films like this and bring up this issue. And in 2012, we started filming the journey of a young undocumented woman who was fighting the deportation case of her mother. And we have been filming this story for years um, because we never expected that a process, a deportation process can take many, many years. And it, the process for this family went on until just recently, this last December, when they finally had a, the final court hearing. And, and so we were there filming as well. And, and now we have this film that has, has captured a lot of what this family has gone through through uh-huh. the years, uh-huh. but it also captures some of the changes that have happened in Colorado, thanks to the advocacy of immigrant-led immigrant, immigrant uh, rights movement. Yeah, I'll be sharing that soon when it's ready. I, we are Excellent. trying to get it finished, but uh, yeah, thanks for, for talking about that too. That's another really excited, exciting part of my life. Could you have dreamt that when you were still back in Puebla? I mean, could you have imagined you come from storyteller parents and now you're turning into a storyteller yourself? And I love that. I think that is just beautiful. Your parents have to be so proud of you. They are. What is the most important thing you would like people to know about you? I am a human being just like you with um, imperfections, with dreams, um, with love to give. And I wish people wouldn't see me as a political subject um, or as a status, but just to see me as their sister. Um, I am a person of faith and I like to look at people as my siblings, uh, no matter where they come from or what their own beliefs are. Mm -hmm. But to me, if we are all in this earth together, we are all siblings. Oh, Laura, you are so good with words. You are so in the right business. My goodness, that was just the perfect ending to a fantastic interview. Thank you. Wow. A pleasure talking to you, so I appreciate that. (laughs) That's so wonderful. Well, we've made it to our final closing questions. So this is the easy part. Uh, What is your best tip for making the world a better place? To me, the best tip to make the world a better place is remembering that we don't have the answers right now and that we need to come together and figure out what those answers are. Mm, Um, Yes. And when we have an issue that looks very big and complicated, um, if we just remind ourselves, we don't need to have the answer right now but just the willingness to take a step and try to approach that issue. Um, That's my tip. That is a perfect life hack. And I can tell you, you've learned that through experience. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What are you most thankful for? Um, I am thankful for my dad and the courage that he had 
to dream big and to have this vision that if we were to come here, we would have a better life and to actually make it happen. Mm -hmm. Because I've had, despite all the difficulties, I've had a really good and rich life. Mm -hmm. And I love and adore my children. And every time I look at them, I thank my dad because my children are my American dream. All right, your last and final question. What is your favorite quote? My favorite quote is, love one another. Mm. And that is just my mantra that I Mm -hmm. live with. And it's a great piece of advice that if we have love for one another, we can solve anything. That's so appropriate. And that fits you and your life and how you live it so aptly. What a a beautiful way to end. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Kari. It's a pleasure talking to you. What a powerful story of tenacity, courage, and love. Her father took incredible risks because of that love. What father wouldn't? Laura overcame great odds as a person without status to achieve her dream of higher education. But most importantly, she learned perseverance through her struggles and came out stronger because of them. Of course she gives back to her community in such palpable ways. Of course she seeks to help others. It's who her father encouraged her to be through his own life example. Thank you for reminding me of the beauty that comes when we persevere through the hard times. I believe Maya Angelou captures the essence of who Laura is best when she says, You may encounter many defeats, but you must not be defeated. In fact, it may be necessary to encounter the defeats so you can know who you are what you can rise from, and how you can still come out of it. May we all encounter defeats and choose to rise from them, as Laura has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.